could have been horrendous for me, but I ended up really enjoying it. And that's something that I think is, is a tricky thing to learn, is that sometimes you have to get somewhere and be like, well, this isn't really for me, but now I know. Although still never easy, it was, it was a success for me personally in the way that I saw the, the changes I needed to make in myself in order to be a good leader. So now you've got more tools in the toolbox for whenever you pick up a, a vagina gig. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's like my Swiss Army knife. <laughs> I love it. Welcome to the Theatre Art Live podcast. And hello, we're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe. The culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Rob. On this episode, we'll be talking to Justin Mabardi about stage managing live shows for TV. Justin is a Theatre Art Live contributor, and he was our guest host interviewing Nova Vergeron in episode 30 and Jason Bassett episode 31 and 32. He is a creative producer and multi-camera director with significant experience in the production and development of live shows and live shows for television. He has associate directed on Broadway, on music world tours, and for film concerts. He also has 15 years of experience stage managing shows and events for every scale in 20 countries. He studied at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and lives in New York City. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. So excited to have you, Justin, and catch up with you today from your New York apartment. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your last 12 months and, and what you've been doing. I know that you've done a few online things for, is it America's Got Talent and, and other things like that. So tell us how you've got through COVID. Sure. So I, for the last 12 months, basically a couple things. So I've been out directing uh, multi-camera for television shows here and there. And NBC had brought me on to this director's program that they have, which was amazing. And that was through essentially February. Come March, I was flying out to Los Angeles for American Idol about mid-March when all of a sudden everything just, of course, you know, in moments shut down worldwide. And I ended up in LA in an apartment, sort of wondering if we were going to open the studio or what we were going to do, try and do it without an audience, things like that because we'd normally go live for six episodes and we ended up just shutting down at home <laughs> and shipping iPhones all over the country to these contestants and essentially producing out all of the content for the show for what would normally be six live episodes through their home iPhone systems and home audio systems and things like that. So it took a team of a hundred or so sort of producers and support team to, to gather all of that and figure it out. And so what normally I would do as a creative director on a television show or creative producer would was more like figuring out like furniture placement and, and adding lighting in and hue systems and all sorts of stuff to just sort of make it as beautiful as possible given the circumstances. Safe to say that we were also very stressed out just because at that moment, COVID seemed like an unimaginable reality for all of us. So that, then I ended up back in LA for Dancing with the Stars uh, for five months, uh, which I also am the creative producer for. Um, and I just got home to New York and have completely shut down <laughs> and ready to take a bit of a, of a rest. But that's been more or less the last uh, 12 months or so. It's been a big up and down. Amazing. I mean, what was that process like pivoting so quick in terms of, you know, going to that online? And what's the end result? I haven't actually seen the end result compared to what the usual live production is like. Sure, sure. 
I think, you know, what we are, what you normally see on a show like Idol or, you know, Got Talent or something of that, of that nature is something that's very, you know, thoughtful, produced, aesthetically pleasing, uh, stage-based sort of performance. And the moment you head home, you're sort of left with a few options. And one thing we, we definitely tried to veer away from was this sort of Zoom look that everyone was sort of able to, to accomplish. And we wanted to sort of approach it from multiple angles, sort of the way you would see in like a normal television. So, so multi-camera setup. And so the way we achieved it is we recorded three passes on three iPhones, all three from different angles. So essentially nine different angles. And on the second pass, we would always take that audio pass and use that for fairness issues. And that way, when we get it into the edit, we can actually edit nine different angles. We can add pushes and beautiful, you know, treatments for color and things like that. But also people are judging from a fairness perspective, always on the same pass for every person. So that that's the pass that people are judging sort of the audio on. The judges then would critique those performances the following day. Uh, we'd record that and then we would put it all together. So what normally would be a live, live television show was actually created in, in the edit but it was all based on the content that we were recording during the week. And in a sense, we were trying to keep the consistency of the judgment the same, them finding out with a live reaction. We weren't trying to produce it so that it was bit by bit by bit. We were trying to make sure that all of the sort of genuine response that you would get from, from a contestant or a host or, or the judges was as true to what we're, we're normally or you know traditionally used to seeing on, on a television show like that. Challenging, but exciting. We were happy. Oh, yeah. It's stressful. 16 hours a day, seven days a week, still network, still, you know, all of those things. And in the end, we were quite, we were really pleased. It was just a much different skill set to be shipping out hundreds and hundreds of boxes a week to all these contestants around the country and determining like, you know, maybe you need some plants in there or, hey, maybe you need a different chair or here's the throw rug I like, you know, that's not even like normally my skill set. So I learned a lot and I, you know, I'm really good on Amazon now. <laughs> Creative director, aka interior designer. <laughs> yeah, yes, I just added to the list. <laughs> That's what stage managers do. You just added to the list. Exactly. Just uh, just a multi tool all day long. But you did do some designing classes or stuff at school, right? So you do have that background. Yeah, I did. I studied um, light design for several years back at UC Santa Barbara. And that actually has really helped me because my role over the last 15 years prior to what I do now had been largely production-based. And even though I'd always had like a good eye for the creative side, it was never my forefront, you know, sort of job responsibility. Safe to say for shows, say sort of Broadway style or generally American, North American theatrical shows where a stage manager would sort of do the creative uh, maintenance on a show, that was sort of like an isolated event. And it wasn't until I moved more on to, you know, as an associate director or things like that, that that old, that old skill <laughs> came back to life, let's say. Do you want to explain a little bit, how do you transition to those positions and working for television? And then what do you actually do as a creative producer or as a multi-camera director? Sure. I think there is no one way. I think what I learned as a stage manager, particularly for musicals or music-based performance cue calling, was that that was when I started to see multi-camera directors in television run the show. It was all based on musical timings when it comes to performances. And so what you do as a stage manager is to take all of the creative and place it in a book, essentially, 
and then you're there to replicate the same series of events on a nightly basis or per show, whatever the case is, you're responsible for the accuracy of that cue calling and ultimately the creative responsibility of the visual part of the show. Also safety, also many other things. But from that perspective, that that is the sort of like following the music, following the beat, following all of those timings. When it comes to directing multi-camera for television, particularly live performance-based things, what they do is they break down all of the music into into bars essentially and then you line up all of your shots and so you're essentially on you know camera four for, for two bars and a beat something like that and then you're you're scripting out what that, that camera needs to be doing so it should be pushing or it should be getting a mid shot things of that nature and then you know you're sort of sequentially adding in shots throughout the whole performance now that's a lot of shots it's a lot of cues it's a lot of people adjusting to what you've scripted so you go through a rehearsal process, you lock it in, and then truthfully, the AD is the one who's calling out uh, the musical timing, which I didn't understand until much later, is, th is that basically you're, you're scripting out your vision, other people are taking those notes, and then essentially the execution part in that moment is the AD calling out the cues so that all of the camera people, camera operators, and also uh, the technical director, who's the one pushing all the buttons, is following essentially a pre-planned idea. Anyway, all of that's important to understand because what I understood as a, as a theatrical stage manager is that when I was listening to the director and the AD call out the live show, it was something that made sense to me very naturally. And I think that a lot of theatrical stage managers would understand that process. Now, I was a little bit naive in thinking I had like understood 80% of the job. There's way more to it. There's a lot of skill. There's a lot of technique that's involved in that. But in the execution, the of course, I think stage managers would understand a lot of what the reality is. So how did I get there? I don't know. I just started basically like harassing people to let me <laughs> to shadow them. And uh, there's a great, we have a great director on America's Got Talent, Russ Norman, who I just approached and said, listen, this is something I think I'm interested in. Would you consider letting me shadow? And that was at the urging of the executive on that show, a woman called Sam Donnelly, and he allowed for it. And so I was able to sort of sit with him for weeks on end, just sort of absorbing and seeing what he was doing and how he was approaching it. And that's hard because you're just sort of looking at it, you know, and it wasn't until I happened to do a stage management job for Red Bull in Miami a few years ago. And I was approached by randomly the CEO of the company who was appreciative of the work I had done for him and basically asked if there was anything he could do for me. And I said, well, I'm trying to become a multicam director. And he said, well, I happen to have a TV station. And so, <laughs> I mean, and then, so I was, I was introduced to a few people who gave me my first shot, essentially directing the World Mixed Martial Arts Awards ceremony. And then from there, I moved on to direct sort of live kind of sporty events that Red Bull does. And they do something called Flugtag, which is where people like build, not real airplanes, but essentially things that are supposed to fly. And then they run them off the side of a pier and it's a crash disaster, but it goes on for, I mean, ever for like eight hours, I want to say. And so it's, it's a live calling of all of that, which then eventually ends up on their Red Bull TV thing. So you know, I think it was just more about being thrown into the deep end and, and paying attention. Luckily, that, that gave me a lot of opportunity. And it wasn't until recently that, and, and that was the, the program I was mentioning earlier, I had had a meeting with, with the heads of NBC, and they suggested I apply for this program so that they could sort of take me more seriously, I suppose, at the network level, 
just to make sure that I had trained up with a few of their top directors. And so I was given the opportunity to uh, learn from Phil Hayes, who is also the director of Dancing with the Stars and American Idol, which was like a, like a lucky blessing that I already knew him and someone that I could learn from very well, who I just love this man. And then uh, another guy called Alex Rosinski. And he is the director of World of Dance, amongst many other shows and also musical-based shows, who's an incredibly talented man in his own right. And so I was able to see these sort of two different uh, perspectives of directors, plus Russ Norman from AGT. So I had a lot of really good trainers, tutors, however you want to say, but essentially mentors who have sort of supported that process for me. And that was something that, to be honest, I asked for and followed up on. And then I even more so learned that I like it. And I think that that's something that a lot of times you don't know until you do. It could have been horrendous for me, but I ended up really enjoying it. And that's something that I think is, is a tricky thing to learn is that sometimes you have to get somewhere and be like, well, this isn't really for me, but now I know. <laughs> Luckily, that's been good for me. Yeah, I think it's good. You know, it's a good sort of case case in point in, in transitioning from one career to the other, not that it's necessarily a, a different career, just a different sort of laneway, I guess, that you pretty much, even after having a quite a successful stage management career and live theatrical production, were willing to just go and sit and watch other people do their job for a period of time, you know, and be willing to take that step back and become a beginner again. And I think that's a great way to to start and then, you know, put yourself out there and make those connections. And we often talk about it's, you know, who you know and being in the right place at the right time, but you really have to, you would agree that you'd have to make the effort to be in that space to be to get that opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And I feel that, you know, the the old, it's who you know, and, and people sort of poo-poo that. But oftentimes, like, you end up working with people you know because it's people that you have a shorthand with. And I think that that's a really important thing is that people that you trust, it's people that you understand, people that you know can get the job done. And there needs to be avenues for new people to come in on projects. And that's something that's really important uh, to sort of maintain as a leader is to give people the opportunity to come in and to grow. But I think that it's really important that even, you know, even through when I teach lectures at college classes or whatever it is, I think I always remind them, you know, that they're like, well, I don't know anyone. And I was like, well, you know me. And honestly, that's it. Like that, you, you literally, you, here's my email address and that's, that's it. Like that is the answer. That's where you start. So, so when the world opens again, I want to come and sit in the TV studio when you're come calling. Come on out. <laughs> I'll see you in LA. Hollywood, darling. <laughs> yeah, my God. I'm, this, this little country girl is not ready for Hollywood. <laughs> Listen, it's a whole project for sure. You started in California, went around the world, and then came back to California, basically. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, I grew up in Santa Barbara. My family's all from New York on my dad's side and Egypt on my mom's side. And my mom moved us to Santa Barbara when we were kids and went through UC Santa Barbara there. And actually, I applied. (laughs) It's funny. I applied as a business major to all of my schools and ended up getting into UCSB as a theater arts department student, which was not what I applied for. And there had been some sort of issue with the Scantron system for anyone out there who's got that Scantron thing. And we all, and so I went in to change my major because I had no experience in theater. And I ended up getting talked into taking a few design classes by this guy, Steve Tanaik, who's the light design professor and at the time. And so it turned out I was better at design than I was at, I was horrible at business, like the worst. But you know what? There's another thing. You, you got to learn what you like and what you don't like. And uh, and I was I was really bad at, at business statistics. I was 
good at the at the uh, at the theatrical side of things. And when I ended up working on in the summers for Disneyland in California, I shadowed some stage managers on some of their big sort of nighttime shows. And that's what led me to stage management, truthfully. So I went back to school and really pushed as a stage manager uh, because that's what I was, I think, more confident at than at design. Design was really kind of a mental, it was hard for me mentally to sort of figure out throw and distance, watts, volts, amps, all this kind of thing and how, what an impact it was really going to have. But the production and the execution of the creative vision was something I was really confident at. So that's why I sort of went down the stage management road and it led to a lot of really great experiences in my life. Um, but that's how I got into stage management. How did all your experiences around the world help you and define a little bit who you are and how you work? What is different working in California from working in China and in the Middle East? Well, I think what, and I'll speak as an American really, because I think that What I learned in school was I was sort of thrown into the deep end. In school, it was a research university. So you just sort of are doing, uh, which was actually beneficial. Disneyland and California stage managers, you know, there's more or less the way you do things. It's actually quite similar to, you know, what we consider to be like the Broadway method, more or less of things. But it's got its own Disney influence of how Disney operates on the back end of things. You know, I moved to New York 2002, right after 9-11, like an idiot, and uh, was sort of running around trying to find work. And of course, no one, <laughs> I mean, it's not, I mean, you know what I mean? There was, that's not funny, but you know what I mean? Like, of course, I'm just running around for to stage doors and like asking for work and there's literally like no, nothing's open. So the first job I actually got professionally after moving to New York was in Moscow. And I ended up going out to, to work there. And that was still an American company but you were working with a Russian crew. And I think that that was a big eye-opener for me. Even though it was a short-lived experience, I sort of started to see, you know, truthfully at that point, when you start to work on the international side of things, you have to not only be good at what you do, but you also have to be a good communicator. And that's between people, between departments, between languages, between to try and find a solution for something. A lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this work in the circ world, And one of the things that you learn in the circ world, or at least on an international event scale, is you have to, you know, all right, so, you know, Joe over there, or Joseph speaks French and Italian, but not English, and Joanne speaks Italian and English. And so you can get to Joseph through Joanne. And you really have to like try and find those links to make sure that everyone is understanding things or safe and figuring out how to solve problems. And I use that as a metaphor mostly because. It's also good as a stage manager to be able to understand really what like an automations, you know, programmer does and really what a light design nerd does and, you know, what's happening in the costume shop so that you can understand in your relationship with the director where maybe things are going well and where we're struggling or what to expect and what's realistic. And that way you can sort of help drive the ship and set the tone for the event, because it's really important that, that all of those things are sort of systematically in place. And I think that that is the important thing that a stage manager can do, particularly on the international scale, is sort of how you're collecting all of those things and bringing them together. That's sort of the difference, I think, between like what you would traditionally do, say, in New York, compared to, to, to being out inter on the international side. And New York tends to have like a very clear way that they operate from a Broadway side. Um, there's a certain number of weeks 
of, of rehearsal, a certain number of weeks of tech, a certain number of weeks of previews, and the way that the book is laid out, the way that you know you script it, the way that all of those things are more or less in the same world of things. And yes, it may be longer because of the technical side of things. And it may be, you know, you may get a few more weeks or days or whatever. But fundamentally, most shows operate one way, and that's for profitability and just to make sure that they can achieve their goals because most shows fail financially. Do you think that um, your experience globally when you came back to the States was beneficial in terms of your ability to be maybe more flexible, more accommodating, more like let's try something different kind of mentality? Do you feel that that was an element of growth that you discovered from working overseas? Absolutely. I think I tend to use one specific story often, and that is, you know, after coming out of show like Le Rev and coming back to Broadway, you know, I was used to a lot of like these generalist acrobats walking off stage with a bloody nose and a broken arm and walking up to me and being like, do I still go on? And you're like, no, <laughs> get, get out of there. <laughs> I'm like, you're definitely have a concussion and this is a disaster. Whereas... <laughs> on Broadway, you know, there's like, there's like a little bit of water on the stage and people are throwing like a huge tantrum. Sorry, Broadway. You know, I think that you start to learn different skills and also different respects for how people process information, how things are seen, how, you know, because people see different things as good, bad, dangerous, you know, successful, even a director like, like Franco Dragone, who we all know, he loves to have the time to shake and find things and, and, and be experimental in his process. That is not the process that people are accustomed to in many other places. And also it like would be shocking for some people. I see a lot of value in the way Franco handles things, but I think that that is from a creative perspective, you know, once the show is, is mounted. So I think it just really depends on where you're coming from, how the French see rehearsals versus how the Italians see rehearsals versus how the process, well, I don't know, I'm just sort of saying things now, but I think you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. But I guess the TV work that you've done has been mostly with groups of Americans, right? There's not a lot of, is there a lot of cultural diversity in television thus far that you've worked with? I've done, most of the shows I've done have been US-based. I did six months in China, in Changsha last year, was it? For World's Got Talent, which was essentially the Got Talent format brought into China. And then all of the best acts from around the world were brought to China to compete for the, you know, the reigning champion title of the world. And that was actually very interesting for me. It was hard, I have to say. And I made a lot of good friends from that project. But it was very much about trying to find a way to merge the speed of American television into a system that just wasn't prepared for that process. And I learned a lot. And I thought that, you know, coming out of Macau and work in Hong Kong and some work in Xi'an prior would prepare me for that. But I would say, hands down, it did not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and once, you know, it took a couple, it took a few weeks. It took, it took, well, I'm going to say several weeks for us to sort of understand what was important for this network in China and what was important for our process. And I think that what's interesting about that is, you know, you come in as sort of a representative of this format, of this idea, of this creative process that has made this show successful. And so when you bring in someone who is linked to, 
America's Got Talent or whatever the case is, you've sort of developed a system that will work, that will achieve what you're looking for on the schedule that you're trying to, uh, to attain. So I think that what I was trying to find in that process was what I was used to and comfortable with. And once I was able to sort of take a step back and see truthfully what, what was working and what wasn't versus what my expectations were, I started to understand how to guide things a lot easier, although still never easy. It was a success for me personally in the way that I saw the, the changes I needed to make in myself in order to be a good leader there because it, t- it, it, it did take several weeks. And if I'm frank and honest, I'm sure all three of us on this, on this chat, we all travel and work internationally often and are used to and successful at working internationally in, in that way. But this project in particular really took me like for a surprise. <laughs> okay. For six. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And I think, you know, did you find at the end that you really, that you did, you you talked about the pace of American television. Did you actually physically have to slow your process down to to meet in the middle on that or, or were you able to pick them up and, and get them going at the pace you needed? Like how, how, how did you sort of, what was the end result of that? I had to sort of insist on specific kinds of roles. I mean, there just were no stage managers. There was no real technical direction. It was my creative team, like literally going and picking up and putting props places and things like that, that (laughs) for a live television show, that doesn't work really well. So I'll just leave that there. Did you feel like the end result was you were able to get it to that pace or did you just really have to kind of slow it down? Just for context, the way that you rehearse, you know, for example, on Dancing with the Stars, you have 20 minutes on camera with every act and that's it. And then the next thing you do is a dress rehearsal and then you're live. So to put together your creative process, you have 20 minutes. That's including all the camera shots. It's including everything. So it's literally a race. The clock starts, the crew brings in all the set. You're you're up there trying to figure out where to place it all. All of the sort of decisions you'd made previously with the designers are starting to get set up. And then two minutes later, when things are confirmed on stage, they run it. We do a first pass. Everyone looks at it and you start to give your notes. You do a second pass. It's starting to come together. And then between the second and the third pass, if there are notes coming in from the executives or the network, you start to make those adjustments before you do the third pass. And then they start to clear the stage for the next act. So that's it. That's the process. And that's that's how it works. So you have one rehearsal day. And on that rehearsal day, everything happens. And then the next day you come in, you, you do a dress rehearsal, and then you're live. So that's how it works on the American process. So on the process that we experienced in Changsha, it was like hours <laughs> for one thing and to sort of like try and solve for one, one performance. And I don't want to shade them because they're, they have their own process and their own priorities. And obviously they are looking for a certain thing, but they, but they had come to us for the creative responsibility portion of it. And so we were trying to find a way to make it work. And the thing is, they have such talented people. They have such talented designers. They have such, you know, my my experience was really positive on that side. It was really the process part of it that was the struggle. And once we got the process down, we started to see big results in the way that we were approaching things. That's where we had struggled, let's say. So if you were to go again next year to do the same show what would you do or what do you 
take from that lesson? I think it took me a couple months to recover from that experience. And now I'm like, I miss them. <laughs> and we still, we chat and the whole thing. And like, you know, I, I'm a godfather to one of the kids out there. And I have really strong feelings for, for this team. And I, and, and, and I know that I'm saying all of these really hard experiences we had, but that doesn't mean that I didn't like a lot of the people that, that were on that team. I would go back to it understanding very well exactly how to approach it. And to be frank, I'm directing something right now between uh, Dragon TV and a company in Italy. And so now this experience, that experience has sort of informed me about how, how to work well with the executives at Dragon TV and to understand what they're looking for, to give them the opportunity to speak on things that I'm not used to people speaking on so that they can have a hand in everything as well. And I think maybe that's part of the process is that there's there's a lot of like interest in being part of the process, but then the, the execution part is maybe where I would say the West has it down. <laughs> so now you've got more tools in the toolbox for whenever you pick up a, at the China gig. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's like my Swiss army knife. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What's, what's the thing that you like most about your job? I do like the speed of television. It is crazy. It is panic inducing. It is all those things. But I also like that it, at the end of the day, it's over. That something about that, that actually helps me sleep at night. If I'm honest, I like the opportunity for the change in the, in my day-to-day process and to learn to not take things to not to be so precious about every choice that I'm making to really try and, and value the relationships of the people with me and to make sure everyone is home and asleep and, you know, having a cocktail by 6 PM, if that's your thing. And then, but it's really more about the day to day in that environment. It's the nice thing about television in that way is that you all show up to the studio doing the thing that you're doing, you all do it and then you all go home. And that I really enjoy. I like the opportunity to be creative. I like the opportunity to bring in choreographers, designers, people that I love to work with, people who I who I value their their creative contributions to a show and to try out new new things. One thing that I was able to do this last year and into this year was to sort of reimagine the way a show looks. And so for Dancing with the Stars, I pitched to them that you know the show should really land visually somewhere between the Met Gala and the film, The Birdcage. And uh, and that's to be that it should be like visually really pleasing. It should be really fun and, and daring, but then also it needs to have, it needs to be lighthearted. It needs to be a little bit cabaret. It needs to be all of those things um, in order to kind of be successful. And so they bought it and we've been able to, to achieve that. And I'm really proud of that show. Like I'm really proud of, of the work we've done to sort of make it, to make it where it is. And that is something that is new in my career is to be able to be sort of given the keys to the kingdom and really make choices and feel confident in those choices. I mean, you have to, you have to pitch and you have to to get sign off on all the choices, but at the end of the day, you're the one in the room making all of those things happen. And that I really like a lot as a director. I think that what I like about that is that it really is this other side of my brain that it's more, it's more in line with what I would do as a stage manager in the theatrical sense. And that's not to say that you're not, I mean, you're, you have to be very creative as a director, but it is way more of a functional process in order to achieve certain things. You have to know the technical 
understanding of you know these cameras and what angles and this that and the other and it's a lot more like light design in that way in that you're you're choosing how things are going to be viewed and that is something that it takes a while because it's a little bit of a brain to figure that out and to be sitting at your desk at night with a piece of paper and a pencil and making notes based on the way you think that something's going to look in theory and so that is something that i really actually enjoy that side of it so I think it's cool though. Right now, you know, most of what I do is what's in front of the camera and I'm working on now what's behind the camera. And so, you know, I like that. I don't know. I like a challenge. When you work on those projects, I guess they have a season. So how long is that production period? And then you say you take breaks. So you're probably working 16 hours a day at the schedule that you do. You're going to need a decent downtime. So what's the ebb and flow of that for you um, in your personal life? You know, those shows range from the live part of it is different than the pre-production. The pre-production could be eight weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever it needs to be. And then the live part of it is two weeks to to 11 weeks, basically. And so that is, that's like a very demanding time period. So if you're on a project for 19 weeks, it's quite, it's, it's, it can be exhausting. Luckily, I, I've been fortunate enough to have significant breaks between my projects which gives me the opportunity to sort of breathe and, and pick, up, pick up the pieces <laughs> and see, you know, answer all the texts of the boys that I haven't been able to go out with and, <laughs> and try and get my real life back together to a, a variety of uh, <laughs> success stories. But I don't know. I think that it's, it's good because I get to travel and see friends. It's good because I get to go and see my family, probably more than I would in any sort of normal situation. But I think that, I don't know, it's sort of just become my life. I don't really think about it more than that. Even when I'm off, there's still like, you know, meetings and figuring out what's next and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that other than like, you're looking at it. This is what happens. It's just me on the couch at some point, just trying to recover (laughs) from a lot of stress. I love it. And if you could change anything from the way your job or the industry operates, would you change anything? What would you change? The one thing that I learned this year very clearly with Black Lives Matter sort of taking a big forefront, sadly, because of of the murders of many people, but particularly George Floyd, was I I looked around and I was like, oh my God, I don't know a lot of Black designers. Um, I don't know a lot of Black producers. I do know a lot of black people who are like music directors or stylists um, in specific roles, but there are specific roles in which I know no black people. And so that was something that was really important for me to sort of take note of and to try and reach out to find people who are black, who would be able to interview for jobs that I had. And that is something that I wish was easier. And you know, I think that a year ago, I would have I would have sort of like stumbled through stating these things because it feels sort of, it feels like a tricky conversation, let's say. But one thing that I think that we're doing better at now as, as an industry is sort of, you know, now I actually am trying to interview as many sort of black designers and producers as possible. Not that I have a job right off the bat, but that hopefully you know, in time I will. And, you know, I think that that's something that I, I wish hadn't been so not obvious to me previously. 
in certain kinds of roles and certain kinds of capacities. So I would say that that is something that I wish that I had been better at previously. I think it's amazing though you're acknowledging that and and taking active steps to try and rectify those actions and you know as we continue to unlearn the things that we've been missing I guess and that's I think that's globally we've had a lot of conversations as well with people around the globe I don't think it's necessarily a, an American thing it's ignited some revision of multiple cultures looking at the way that they construct their society and their opportunities for, for diversity it's not a good situation that are highlighted and that made everybody reflect do you think also just sort of kind of side note do you think that it was more impactful this year because of COVID and we probably were taking a little bit of a sit down and break in the world and our and our industry. So we had the time to to focus on an issue such as as important as that, um, rather than in our full swing of shows and production, it might have been a, a blip in the news and and that we hadn't had the time to to reflect on that. Yeah. I think absolutely without question. I think that that, you know, we were all focused on our phones and television screens for such a long period of time. And I think everyone had been home for such a long stretch that when, you know, these horrific images showed up on our television screens and also, I I mean, I don't know everyone else's experience, but what my friends or colleagues were talking about or posting or what I was hearing from them shocked me. If I'm honest, it's not that I didn't understand that, that there was, a big issue. There is there is a large issue of racism, particularly in the United States, that needs to be, I don't know how to put it better than that needs to be looked at and fixed. And that isn't something that you just say and it happens. But I didn't know that friends of mine were still uncomfortable walking home at night. I didn't know that, you know, colleagues of mine drive home with a plastic pouch that has their ID in it you know, and their insurance card so that not if they get pulled over, but when they get pulled over, they can say very clearly, it's in the plastic bag that's next to me. You can see through it. You can see what's in there. I mean, experiences like this, I don't have. I do not have them. I also did not know that my friends and colleagues were having very different experiences from from me in their day-to-day lives. You know, you hear about it, but until you start to talk about it with people whom you love, and whom you, you know, respect dearly, that you start to say, like, holy hell, like, this is crazy, in a way that it, it, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I didn't recognize it or know or know to ask or understand that it wasn't just some distant conversation. For some people, it was very much in my circle. And I didn't understand that. No, I mean, we'd have to do another whole podcast on that one, I think. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I just really appreciate being that open and honest about it because it's a subject that it's scary and important. Yeah, absolutely. When we did our Black Lives Matter podcast, I was like, oh, well, let's let them speak. I have no idea. You know, like it was really, but I think we have to dive in and get ourselves educated. And, you know, like you said, the more and more you talk to people who have lived those experiences, the more you realize you don't know, you know, and I think that's uh, where we have to keep doing that work. Agreed. I mean, I even did it the way that I sort of have operated in my career. I just called up all my friends, embarrassingly, who are Black. And I was like, what do I do? To different, you know, varying degrees of of response. You know, some were like, I can't believe you don't know this. And some were basically like coaching me on. And I was like, no, I've got to be brave for you. You know, I was doing it all wrong, you know. But 
it's not for lack of trying. And I think that, I mean, I can't imagine to be in the same position, but I think we all appreciate when people are, are doing their best or what they think is, is right, you know, in the moment and, and are open to being corrected too. Mm, absolutely. So how does our audience find you, Justin? Uh, what's the best way to connect? I'm basically just on Instagram. I'm at Mabardi. And then I have a website. It's justinmabardi.com. So embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't feel. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not embarrassed if it's yeah. out there. You're just not a self. You're just not a self promoter <laughs> like that. Huh? No, I, I'm not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, coming on our show and giving us an insight into your life and work. And um, we're wishing you all the best for 2021. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Please write a review on our podcast whenever you listen to our podcast and let your friends know about us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life by visiting our website at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on social media and leave your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, or YouTube. We really want to thank David Zaya for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharotta, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Life podcast, where we put the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world.